Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to a leading Chicago author and sociologist about the hidden racism in school choice, chatted with a taxicab driver turned author, and caught up on tech opportunities for disadvantaged youth. All this and more, plus the Trump Diaries, on Lumpen Week in Review for April 28, 2017. Fred and Mike Klonsky spoke with Chicago writer, sociologist, and artist Eve Ewing about evictions, public school choice, and segregation in our city. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Hi, this is uh, Fred Klonsky with my brother Mike Klonsky and Dr. Eve Ewing. This is WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpin Radio. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're talking about, well, actually, we're talking about uh, race and uh, housing and all these things. Uh, you know, we've got uh, record, we've got record uh, uh, evictions going on now yeah. in, uh, on the south side of Chicago. Yep, and South foreclosures, yep. uh, for, uh, housing foreclosures, people losing their houses because they're $200 in arrear on uh, property taxes. I mean, uh, and uh, to me, it's, it's all, uh, it all connects to schools. Yep. Uh, what, I, what I've been calling the whitenizing of the cities. Yep. And um, uh, that's why when I hear from, um, from uh, Rahm Emanuel and Forrest Claypool, all these fantastic uh, uh, statistics about uh, test scores going up and about um, uh, dropout rates coming down, I, I, it makes me wonder whether there's been real changes in the schools or whether this has to do with pushing out of poor folks yeah. from the school system. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, uh, the CPS admitted after they were busted, I think by WBEZ, uh, you know, they have some really great education reporter over there. I think or maybe it was Sarah Carp that found yeah, it. I but think anyway, it was Sarah Carp, yeah. yeah, they were uh, they were fudging the numbers on those uh, dropout sure rates. <laughs> and uh, so now if you go to their website, they and they won't quite admit that they were fudging the numbers. They'll say, "Well, we were calculating it a certain way and then now in 2015 we changed the way." So that's one thing. Um, but I think you're right is that um, you know, our parents' generation had white flight, and now, for a lot of folks my age, white folks that are my age and maybe 10 or 15 years older, the city is now a desirable place to come back and raise your family. But it's always with a, a little sprinkling of diversity flavor without necessarily, uh, you know, just a little diversity seasoning packet sprinkled on the top, kind of like you get in ramen noodles, and not not what we would consider true uh, true diversity of the city in which it currently exists. So there's sort of a colonial mentality of wanting to come in and make the city look the way you want it to look so you know I loved growing up in Logan Square and I always wished yeah come come to my neighborhood come hang out and see all the great things we have to offer but if you're only now willing to go to the neighborhood because it has you know stuff that is appealing to you because it has like craft cupcake bakeries or somebody posted something about a, a kombucha bar that's going to be opening up 20 taps of different kombuchas opening up I in think Logan I've got Square. three of those within 50 yards <laughs> of my house <laughs> yeah <laughs> right I had to Google kombucha. Yeah, it's no like a it's like idea. a fermented something something. <laughs> it's like Pong uh, Yang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not something our grandmas drank. Let's put it that way. No. But um, you know, it's like you only want the city on your terms, and we see that reflected in public schools. So, for instance, CPS. Uh, you know, Chicago is still about a third, a third, a third, roughly uh, black, white, Latinx in in the city. But CPS um, has about nine percent white students. So there are lots of white kids in Chicago. They just don't go to CPS and. If you look at where they're concentrated, they're highly concentrated in a very few number of these kinds of schools of choice, what we write, quote unquote, choice. Um, and so uh, and there's a lot of really interesting data about how white parents choose schools and will literally choose schools that are um, not as well off academically in terms of their performance um, if they have higher percentages of white children. So when white parents say diversity, what they maybe mean is I want a class of like, you know, all white kids, maybe a couple Asian kids here and there, a black kid, you know, a Mexican-American kid, and we can be good. And it's not really a vision of um, sharing space that is sustainable where all of us can really be together. And that speaks to the fact that we've never had true school integration in this country, right? Integration meant, okay, we're going to bring these people in from this other part of the community. They have to adapt and maybe face violence, you know, psychological or physical violence um, and make it work as opposed to really bringing people together. And it's also a question of uh, um, who, when we talk about diversity, 
who's who what value who does that value belong right, to exactly. right so so you find uh, or at least i found that uh, uh parents will come like to logan square will come and tell you well i'm looking i i, I want to send my kids to public school because i value diversity but um uh the puerto rican families that have been sending their sending really generations of kids to those schools and who have felt an ownership in some ways over right. the schools that they're not valuing diversity. In fact, in some ways they look at it as a challenge to something that they, it's still, they, they get to own so little right. in the city that, that here they have a school that, uh, that, that they get to serve on the councils and, and then, so, so the issue of diversity is kind of a, a mixed, ba- mixed bag as far as they're concerned, right? Yeah, it is. And it's also, you know, I talk to parents, I have white friends and colleagues and they'll say, you know, I thought about sending my kid to, you know, local neighborhood student of color populated school, but you know, they would have been the only one, you know, or they would have been one of just a few. And I'm like, do you realize you're talking to me, any black person you meet who has uh, anything beyond high school education or even not like you're talking to somebody that has spent their life having to be the only one all the time. You know, it does suck to be the only one. Nobody felt bad for me when I was at the University of Chicago and I was the only black kid in my class or when you're in Harvard and you're the only one, you know, and, and as black people and people of color in America, we're expected to fight that fight in order to get things for our families in order to be successful or have social mobility. And so it's like, I just like crime a river that you didn't want your kid to, you know, uh, be the only one that didn't have a quinceanera in their class. Like, oh, boohoo, I'm so sad for you. Like, you know what? Maybe they'll learn something about somebody else and have the fun of going to a quinceanera as opposed to wanting to centralize your own experience. But I think it really speaks to what, what Mike, you're saying is that this is also a broader national trend, right? In Detroit, in D.C., in Philly, in New Orleans. And you're right that it's intimately tied to schools because the relationship between where people live and where they send their kids to school is so bound up um, and it's just it's really it's really depressing the schools are the schools are the uh, real estate hook that's right, right? Uh, I see it in neighborhoods all the time now uh, re- uh, signs going up saying uh, realtor signs going up saying uh, here's a not much of a house for a lot of money but your kids can go to a, a great school that's over right. here. you know what they mean by great school is a school that's not uh, those kids in it, That's you know, right. you're not, your kids not going to be sitting next to those kids of so public housing kids or. Uh you know, poor, poor kids. And that's really, you know, what you're saying there to me is really the heart of the issue is that these are our kids, right? All of these kids are all of our concern and all of our moral responsibility. And I just, I get really frustrated with the ease with which um, people really talk about kids like they're disposable. And I understand every parent has a right and a responsibility to do what is best for their children. But I wish that as a country, we felt like it was a moral imperative to really look out for our neighbors and look out for our neighbors' children. And uh, we, we have a leadership. We have leadership uh, in the school system nationally and locally here in Chicago who doesn't send their kids to public schools, but who has a plan for other people's children, <laughs> right? Right, uh, right exactly. Uh, what they call school reform in these days. Exactly, you know? exactly. And, you know, like I said, I always respect people make the individual decisions that they make of where they send a school, their kids to school. But, you know, it's also if it was just one person or a couple people and it was exceptional, it would be one thing. But when we have no leadership that actually reflects an investment in the public school, you have to ask yourself, why are you so certain about what's best for my kids or the kids on my block? But you don't want to you don't a, feel invested as a parent. And there's also an issue of uh, at least on the state level of how we fund uh, how we fund the schools, yes. where the support and the materials and the salary and the things that are needed to provide quality education to kids, that this is primarily based on the zip code, really the race and the economic class of the students who attend those schools. So you have a state who at least constitutionally is mainly responsible for the funding of uh, education to state, but in fact, it's based on local uh, property taxes and so, so you have situations where, in, in which isn't a, a, a terrible burden if you happen to live on the North Shore, but right. if you or live in Robbins or if you live in, uh, yeah, but if you, if you where where the tax base is is weak anyway, and they're already being taxed in term, uh, those those properties are already being taxed at the highest level that the law allows, so that. The burden on the on the on funding education is really much greater. I get letters all the time to my uh, blog by people who say, 
well, you're calling for a, a graduated income tax, or you and rich people will leave if you do that. Well, first of all, if you're if you're rich like Bruce Rauner is rich, and you have nine uh, homes spread right. out around the world, uh, who leaves? That you come, you go when you want to. It's mainly, as we pointed out, is it's mostly poor people that are being forced either to carry the burden or, or to pushed leave, out of the city or to leave. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, it's also it's double jeopardy because, you know, Chance the Rapper made huge headlines when he gave a million dollars to several Chicago public schools. And I applaud him for that huge act of charity. I also feel like Chance the Rapper should be able to enjoy his million dollars and go do whatever he wants with it. And I don't I, I want us to, I pay taxes. I want to be able to send my kid to an excellent school. And but I also want every kid in the city to be able to have an excellent school, regardless of whether they're in foster care, regardless of whether they're homeless, regardless yeah. of whether their parents are addicted to drugs, because kids don't choose those things. And the thing that frustrates me about the the Devosian, uh, the Betsy Devosian kind of school of thought of like this is we're going to have markets and you know we're going to fight it out and the best schools are going to win is you always have to think about those kids that really don't have a choice and I try to um, you know a lot of education researchers kind of get you get far away from the actual kids so something I try to do is spend as much time as I can just going to schools and talking to kids and being around teachers and whenever I'm there I always just think we're having all the wrong conversations because if you walk into a room like I walked into a first grade classroom and you see a child that looks visibly malnourished, right? Or I walk over, I I was a CPS teacher so I can spot a squinting kid from across the room. You know, I walk over, honey, where are, your, are you supposed to be wearing glasses? Yes. You know, where are your glasses? Oh, they broke. Kids break glasses, right? And then they can't see. You're hungry. You're, you need dental work. All these basic things. The fact that we can begin to have a conversation about a graduation rate or a test score, anything like that, when you have six, seven, eight-year-olds, 13-year-olds that are hungry, that slept on a mattress with three people last night, that don't know, you know if they're going to get evicted or not the next week, everything else to me is an absolutely pointless conversation until those basic needs are met. I-94 spoke to Bridgeport author Dmitry Samarov about the pleasures of routine, the death of the taxi cab, and what a Gandalf is. This excerpt begins with a reading from Samarov's book, Where To? I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. An O next to a fare displayed on the Gandalf means that it's a time order. More often than not, it's a trip to the airport and thus it's snapped up seconds after it flickers across the screen. i just left the house to start work and, logging onto the system, saw 500 I.O. appear as the only currently available fare. The cab company divides the city into zones with odd numbers for the south side and evens for the north. Zone 500 covers much of Bridgeport and south to the edge of where the Union stockyards used to be. It's within a couple of miles of where I live, so I key in the bid and get the call. It's not an airport job. Instead, the screen displays an address on 38th Street followed by Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m., Friday, 12.30 p.m., please call with cab number. It all comes back to me. I hadn't driven him for several years, not since Checker was its own company, and I hadn't yet been taken over by Yellow Cab. There seemed to be a lot more regular riders then. I spent most afternoons ferrying disabled kids home as part of the mobility program. To supplement RTA handicap vans, the city contracted cab companies to pick up developmentally disabled teenagers and adults. When Checker went under and was swallowed up by Yellow, a lot of that business went away. Perhaps it was just coincidence or a change in city policy. Mr. Hall wasn't a mobility ride, but he reminded me of that time. I pull up to the low building that houses Midwest Lighting on 38th Street, a couple blocks west of Halstead, right at 3 p.m. It's a nondescript structure painted baby blue. Workers soon start to spill out, many pausing to light Salem's, Marlboro's, or Cool's before walking away. Mr. Hall comes out only a few minutes later. He's a lot more bent over than I remember him, but what he says is just as it always was. All right, we're going to take Ogilvy train station, but there's a particular way we need to take. I have no doubt that he instructs every driver, every one of the five days of week that he takes this trip, in exactly the same way. We're going to go to the end of this block, then turn left on Halstead, then take your very first right. He waits until I've accomplished this before resuming. Now, we'll keep going straight for four blocks until we get to Wallace, then we stay on that until 29th Street. I'm not sure why I find him dictating the route endearing. There's an assumption in it that their driver doesn't know the best way to get to his destination. 
I've been guilty in the past of taking quiet pleasure in getting stuck in gridlock because of a passenger's insistence on a particular route I knew to be wrong. Mr. Hall isn't wrong. How long has he been retracing this route? 30, 40 years would be my best guess. At 29th Street, you turn right and go down to the second stop sign. That'll be Canal. Turn left. There will be two speed bumps coming up very quickly, one after the other. We go straight all the way to Madison Street now. He's quiet until we pass 18th, then advises. There's train tracks that are pretty ripped up just past this rise, so I'd slow down. The rest is up to you. We take the final left turn from Canal onto Madison and stop in front of the station entrance. The meter reads 11.25 plus a dollar extra for the gas surcharge. He takes out a baggie full of coins, holds it up to the light, fishes out a quarter, then wraps a ten and three singles around it and hands it to me. I thank you again, he says before leaving. There's a certain comfort in being part of the old man's routine. And that was a reading from Where To by Dmitry Samarov. Dmitry's in the studio with us. And the first thing I have to ask you is, why is a taxi meter called a Gandalf? Uh, I could not tell you, but I was surprised. It, it's not the meter. It's the terminal that displays the fares that okay. are. Uh, I, I suppose somebody, whoever designed that machine was a fan of uh, J.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Does it have uh, a pa- pointy hat? It does not. No. It, it's, it's just a very primitive uh, uh LCD screen with a couple of buttons underneath it, and uh, it displays codes that are for. They div- they divide the city into zones, and that tells you which, where the fare is. Uh, but it's your guide, the cab driver's guide, I guess. Although uh, these days uh, it, they've updated all of that, and it's all it's all GPS. It's it's a lot more high tech. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell us about the pleasure of, of routine, because that seems to be what this passage is about. A, a gentleman that you that does the same thing all the time and has his his way of doing it. Uh, well, f- from my own life, uh, it, it's very important because I, I mean, I'm, I'm primarily a painter. Uh, and so my organizing my own time uh, has always been an important part of my life, uh, because it's so unstructured. Uh, so doing the thing, same things at the same time are very important to have your own. But when, when I saw like, say like this, this old guy, it's a reassuring feeling because you see that this guy's been doing this for whatever, 20, 30, 40 years this way. And there's, there's a satisfaction to it. Uh, there's a, a stability where, where, whereas so much of life is so unstable and the job, uh, cab driving is such a random and sort of stop start thing that having these constants was always, uh, reassuring. I have a situation like that. In a similar way, I work at the library, as, as you guys know, and mm-hmm. there's a gentleman that comes in every day and reads the Sun-Times in the trip. You know, he's an older gentleman who's retired. I've become friends with him over the years. And we usually talk. He's a basketball guy. We usually talk about the DePaul team and the Sox. And, but, like, he got sick a while back. He didn't mm-hmm. show up for, like, a week, and it was really weird. You know, it was just like, I'm not going to say yeah. his name, but I'm just let's just say his name's Roger. I'm like, where's Roger? You know, and, and he wasn't there. And uh, it was uh, – Public libraries also, we don't have a, there's not a lot of consistency, you know, it's, mm-hmm. we have the same situation. Anybody can walk in just like anybody can jump, jump in the back of the cab. And I imagine we have some similar problems, except I don't have to drive while I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. But um, it, his routine is such a part of my routine now. And when it was disrupted, it was a very strange feeling. It's, um, you know, it's it's kind of part of what community is to me, you know, it's just like, this gentleman that I speak to every day of my life, I don't know anything about him. I don't know where he lives, but I do know who, what sports teams he likes and what papers he reads, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just one of those um, kind of like daily boring routines that makes up our lives that are kind of important. Yeah, I mean, I think I think actually routine is incredibly important. I, I try to tend to do the same thing every morning. Some of that is dictated by the fact that I, I'm here reading the traffic and weather, you know, every every morning until around eight o'clock. But there is something that is very soothing and calming about knowing that you get up, have a cup of coffee, read the Times or the Washington Post in my case, uh, do the crossword. I always do the crossword in the Times every morning without fail. Has to be done before nine o'clock. And you know, those are the kind of things that set you on the path to do other things because they allow you to clear your head. And uh, yeah, well, and if if you're in any sort of creative field, writing or or art or what have you. If your time is to any extent your own, you have to make up rituals and schedules because otherwise you end up getting nothing done. Right. 
Was it was it common for a lot of cab drivers to have regulars like that, or? Uh, if you do it long enough, uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, towards the last few years uh, of of my cab career, uh, probably half my fa- maybe not half, but a good chunk were just calling me direct or texting me on my phone and weren't going through the dispatch system at all, and I'd just pick them up. Tech Scene Chicago spoke to Monica Swope from Learning Dimension about tech opportunities for disadvantaged youngsters. Swope discussed the needs in Chicago communities like Lawndale and Austin, how tech can help provide a career path, and about the institutional bias so many face. Tech Scene Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. This is Melanie Adcock, and we're back with Tech Scene Chicago live on 105.5 FM, WLPN, LP Chicago, Lumpen Radio. Our next guest, Monica Swope, is from Learning Dimension, and she's here with us today to tell us about her work with Learning Dimensions and uh, Smart Chicago Collaborative's youth-led tech program. Monica, welcome to the show. Melanie, thank you for having me. We are very glad that you're here today. You're creating educational activities and curriculum. You know, what, what do teens need today to be successful and have a good career in adulthood? What do they need? So first of all, our, our young people need skills. Skills. They need skill sets. Um, sometimes in education, there is an overemphasis on the knowledge. And then we look at, well, what canon of knowledge do we think is actually what our young people should know? Um, but I've, I'm of the mindset, what is long lasting and what can carry over and what promotes lifelong learners are developing skill sets um, into young people. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I would say is they need access to resources. Mm-hmm. So once we've gone beyond the skills that they have the resources to be able to create, to be able to um, learn in a pace that works for them, mm-hmm. to be able to cultivate those passions. Mm. Um, so there needs to be a very intentional investment in making sure that resources are available to our young people. And the resources that I, I speak of are those that um, our young people inform us in mm-hmm. terms of what can make their learning experiences quite rich and what can allow them to really tap into those meaningful skill sets, mm-hmm. which oh, then leads yeah. to opportunities. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you know, we really need to create opportunity spaces for mm-hmm. young people to just be who they need to be within the um, with their age level. Um, you know, your previous guest talked about having a safe space for mm-hmm. them to create, mm-hmm. to be themselves, to geek out, um, mm-hmm. to mess around. Mm-hmm. We need to create those opportunities as well uh, within school systems, within our non-for-profits that work with young people, um, within our community spaces. Mm-hmm. And then um, lastly, I think, and I worked with adolescent students, um, having a great deal of encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know, young people tend to doubt oh. um, the mm-hmm. impact that they can make. And their impact is incredibly great. So we as older people or educators need to encourage Mm -hmm. our young learners um, to be able to pursue those things that interest them, those things that causes aha moments. Mm. Um, And I like to say those are those things that actually promotes lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my philosophy when it comes to education. Mm. Learning should transform the individual's lives and make a difference in that community as well. Now, now t- tell us about the, Chicago, the Smart Chicago Collaborative and their youth-led tech program. So I'll start with the Smart Chicago Collaborative. It is a civic organization, and it's devoted to improving lives in Chicago mm-hmm. through technology. And so the goal for uh, Smart Chicago Collaborative, or SCCC, is to increase access mm. to the Internet and develop Uh, meaningful products um, from data Mm -hmm. in order to contribute to the quality of life uh, of those residents within Chicago and also beyond. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of Smart Chicago Collaborative, one of the projects um, or programs that came from Smart Chicago Collaborative is the Youth-Led Tech Program. Mm -hmm. And the Youth-Led Tech Program was pretty much, um, I would say, a very tangible way to bring technology into the communities and really service uh, young people within the age range of 13 mm-hmm. uh, to roughly 18. Mm. Yeah, all the the, te- the teenage years, the t- some of the toughest years, right? Definitely. Now, what what was your role with, with their summer program? So I was um, the consultant that took on the uh, project management role. 
Um, I had an awesome project uh, coordinator, Mr. Anthony Smith, who also worked in collaboration with me while implementing a uh, youth-led tech for the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and then how, how many kids attended? So in the summer, and I should probably back up, the program actually started in 2015. Mm-hmm. At that time, I was not involved with youth-led tech. Um, there were about five sites, and um, the numbers of the students were, I believe, shy of about 100 or so. Mm-hmm. 2016, we increased the number of sites to 10 sites, um, including uh, one site at the Juvenile Temporary Detention Center. Mm-hmm. And the number of students that we were able to support was um, more than 100 students. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty excited with um, the locations. There was an increase of services within different communities. Um, so we're pretty excited with mm-hmm. that. We definitely are looking for more of an impact in terms of numbers of students mm-hmm. that we can touch. However, they did receive quite individualized um, experiences from their teachers, mm-hmm. which is something that our young people need. They need to feel like they are not a number in a classroom, that they mm-hmm. are heard and seen in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Well, then, c- could we take a moment to describe some of the institutional bias and and racism that these teens f- face today? Yeah, I mean, and, and I would just say, like, within the tech space in general, mm-hmm. I think, what, and this was one thing we had to promote in our curriculum, um, we did have, like, a professional career day. But um, our young people in, this, in these communities do not necessarily see themselves within technology. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see, you know, black and brown people in, in their immediate, uh, in the forefront of their lives that are working on computers, or I should say creating on computers. Um, yes, our, our young people, they work with technology all the time, whether it's phones, whether it's mm-hmm. social media of all sorts, but they never saw the people who actually create it. And so there is a viewpoint that, first of all, you have to kind of get past that, that mm-hmm. you can see yourself in this space, mm-hmm. that you can create your own website. And that website could be one that promotes your own business. So going into this whole thing of um, being self-reliant mm-hmm. and being um, celebrated for the creativity uh, when it comes to technology is something that we were looking for and what we wanted to promote with these young people because they don't see themselves um, you know, a typical black male does not always see himself as being the, the one who actually designs games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, and as a result of that, then some of the young people then uh, veer towards other activities mm-hmm. that, um, you know, to other communities do not seem to be the norm. And then that's how race or stereotypes um, mm-hmm come into place and then targeting those stereotypes to to, to different race mm-hmm. races and then um, groups following those stereotypes because they don't you know that seems to be what is become the norm The Trump Diaries. This week on The Trump Diaries, the 100-day mark approaches, Jeff Sessions is confused by geography, North Korea looms, and a judge says no. Day 91, April 20th. 
Trump escalated his confrontation with so-called sanctuary cities, threatening with the loss of grant money. The Justice Department sent letters to officials in New York City, Philadelphia, California, and others for regulations that interfere with the ability of police or sheriffs to communicate with federal immigration authorities. The agency cited the rising murder rate in Chicago and blamed gang murders in New York on what it called, quote, a soft-on-crime stance. And Bill O'Reilly will get a $25 million payday to leave Fox. Fox has apparently paid out close to $85 million to settle allegations of sexual harassment at that network. Staffers there express frustration at O'Reilly's rich kiss-off. Multiple settlements involving sexual harassment allegations against him brought an abrupt end to O'Reilly's two-decade reign as one of the most popular and influential commentators on television. And House Republicans are making another attempt to try and kill Obamacare. The new proposal gives states more flexibility to opt out of major Obamacare provisions while preserving popular protections like banning discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions. The text of the new bill is likely to circulate by the weekend with intentions to have a vote by midweek. It is unclear whether or not the bill has the support in the face of the looming government shutdown. And the CIA and FBI are searching for the leaker who gave top-secret documents to WikiLeaks. That leak exposed thousands of top-deep documents that describe CIA tools used to penetrate smartphones, smart TVs, and computers. In addition, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is preparing an arrest warrant for Julian Assange, the head of WikiLeaks. Assange has been holed up in the London Embassy of Ecuador under an asylum claim. And the New York Times reported that Carter Page's trip to Russia last July became the catalyst for an FBI investigation into ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. Five years ago, a Russian spy was trying to recruit Page, who is Trump's former foreign policy advisor. Page's 2016 trip further stirred concerns. It is unclear what about Page's visit drew the FBI's interest, whether that was meetings, intercepted communications, or something else. The FBI obtained a FISA warrant to monitor Page. And in a related story, Reuters reported that Russian think tank controlled by Putin developed a plan to swing the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Two confidential documents seen by the agency provided the framework and rationale for what intelligence agencies have concluded was an intensive effort to undermine voters' faith in the American electoral system. And Trump closed the White House sidewalk to the public permanently. The closure, quote, will lessen the possibility of individuals illegally accessing the White House grounds. Day 92, April 21st. The United States will not grant a waiver to ExxonMobil or any other American companies for drilling forbidden by sanctions against Russia, the Treasury Department said. In a one-sentence statement, the department added the decision was made in consultation with Trump. And the Trump administration secured the release of Aya Hijazi, an Egyptian-American aid worker to the USA after three years of captivity in Egypt on trumped-up charges of child abuse and human trafficking. Human rights officials had called the case against Hijazi bizarre, and it was seen as a symbol of the Sisi administration's goal to crush all dissent. And Trump ordered the Treasury to review measures put in place by the Obama administration, setting the stage for a rollback of regulations intended to curtail corporate tax evasion and prevent another financial crisis. Trump is scrambling for achievements as the 100-day mark in the White House approaches. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said, quote, this has nothing to do with the complexity of tax regulations. The president wants to make clear to the American people that we're going to fix the tax code. Trump also said he would unveil a broad outline this week of his proposal for, quote, massive tax cuts, which surprised some of his fellow administration officials. And Jeff Sessions called Hawaii, quote, an island in the Pacific, while criticizing a federal district court ruling last month that blocked Trump's Muslim ban. Hawaii is actually an archipelago as well as a state. I'm really amazed that a judge sitting on an island in the Pacific can issue an order that stops the President of the United States from what appears to be clearly statutory and constitutional power, Sessions said. A Democrat from California fired back with Ted Liu saying Sessions was a, quote, racist and a liar. The House Intelligence Committee asked former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates to testify publicly in the panel's probe into Russian interference in the U.S. election. The committee has also asked FBI Director James Comey and NSA Director Mike Rogers to return before the committee to testify in a closed setting. And Trump's lawyers are arguing that anti-Trump protesters, quote, have no right to, quote, express dissenting views at his campaign rallies. Lawyers for Trump's campaign say that his calls to remove the protesters were protected by the First Amendment. That filing comes in a case brought by three protesters who allege they were roughed up and ejected from a March 2016 Trump campaign rally in Louisville, Kentucky. Day 93, April 22nd. Hundreds of thousands of people marched this Saturday in the March for Science, a global protest against the Trump administration's policies. An estimated 40,000 scientists and their supporters turned out in Chicago. The gathering was peaceful. 
And CNN reports that the FBI have found signs of possible collusion between the campaign and Russian officials, but there's not enough evidence to show that crimes were committed by the Trump campaign. In related news, the Senate probe into Trump's connection to Russia has no full-time staff. Seven part-time staffers are working on the inquiry, none with significant investigative experience, and no interviews with key individuals have been conducted. Day 94, April 23rd. Trump claimed lawmakers must include money for a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border in a must-pass government funding bill, raising the possibility of a federal government shutdown this week. White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney said Trump might refuse to sign a spending bill that does not include any monies for the wall. Trump, of course, claims Mexico will pay for that wall without evidence. And the administration sent mixed messages this weekend on immigration, with Trump telling the Associated Press that the Dreamers should, quote, rest easy and not worry about deportation. But Jeff Sessions, echoing comments he made last week, said on Sunday that anyone in the country illegally could be deported and stressed that the Trump administration is targeting only those engaged in criminal activity. And North Korea has detained a United States citizen, raising the number of Americans thought to be held by the nation to three. That man, Tony Kim, who also goes by his Korean name, Kim Sang-duk, was attained on Saturday. Mr. Kim had taught accounting at Pyongyang University for a month. Mr. Kim had been involved in aid and relief programs to North Korea as well. Reports say the arrest was connected to his work with an orphanage. Day 95, April 24th. Polls closed in France's bitterly divisive presidential election with Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen making it into the runoff. The centrist and far-right candidates will face each other in a presidential runoff on May 7th. The establishment in France suffered heavy losses, but all parties save one have coalesced around Macron in what is being called the Republican Front against Le Pen's fascist party. And Trump imposed sanctions on 271 employees of the Syrian government agency that produces chemical weapons and ballistic missiles, blacklisting them from travel and financial transactions in the wake of a sarin attack on civilians this month. Analysis by American spy agencies suggests that Syria still has significant chemical weapons stockpiles. And President Barack Obama spoke Monday at the University of Chicago telling students to use empathy and listen to those with whom they disagree. Obama made no direct references to Trump or to Congress, saying only, quote, I'm always optimistic when things look like they're sometimes not going the way I want, and that is because of young people like this. Day 96, April 25th. 11 current and former Fox News employees filed a class action lawsuit in New York against the network, accusing it of, quote, abhorrent, intolerable, unlawful, and hostile racial discrimination. The suit contends that Judith Slater, the company's longtime comptroller, engaged in racist behavior and made racist remarks, and that the company covered it up. And Michael T. Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor, appears to have violated federal law by not disclosing his business dealings with Russia when seeking a security clearance. Flynn did not disclose in those documents payments totaling more than $45,000 that he received from the Russian government for giving a speech in Moscow in 2015, among others. In related news, a Turkish man that gave Flynn a $600,000 lobbying deal just before Trump picked him to be national security advisor also had business ties to Russia. And another judge said no to Trump. This time, a judge has told Trump he cannot punish sanctuary cities by starving them of funding, and the jurist used Trump's own tweets against him to boot. William H. Oreck of the United States District Court, in a ruling that applies nationwide, wrote, the president had overstepped his powers with his January executive order on immigration. Oreck said only Congress could place conditions on spending. Trump responded in an early morning tweet storm saying, quote, first the Ninth Circuit rules against the ban, and now it hits again on sanctuary cities. Both ridiculous rulings. See you in the Supreme Court. In fact, Ork does not serve on the Ninth Circuit. However, the Ninth Circuit will review his decision. And Trump softened his demand that a deal to keep the federal government open include money to begin construction on his long-promised border wall. Trump is now open to delaying funding for wall construction until September. Trump continues to claim fact-free that Mexico will pay for this wall. And Trump warned Canada over its import tax on dairy, saying, quote, we will not stand for this. Last April, Canada implemented a new import tax on dairy, which had been duty-free under the 1994 NAFTA agreement. In response, Trump put a 20% tariff on softwood lumber. Canada has vowed to sue if needed. And Ivanka Trump was booed and hissed at during an event in Berlin. Ivanka was grilled about her father's attitudes toward women and asked about what, exactly, her role is in the Trump administration. Ivanka defined her goal as, quote, enacting incremental positive change. Said the moderator, quote, you hear the reaction from the audience. Some attitudes toward women your father has displayed might leave one questioning whether he's such an empowerer for women. Day 97, April 26th. 
all 100 senators have been asked to attend a briefing on North Korea today at the White House by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, and General Joseph Dunford, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It is unusual for the entire Senate to go to an event like this at the White House, but North Korea has recently been projected to be able to make a new nuclear weapon every six weeks. And the New York Times is reporting that Trump is seeking a 15% corporate tax rate, a massive slash that would surely increase the federal deficit by reducing revenues. The current corporate rate is 35%. The plan does not include Trump's promised $1 trillion infrastructure program, nor does it include a House Republican proposal to impose a substantial tax on imports, known as a border adjustment tax, which would have raised billions of dollars to help offset the cost of those cuts. And as the 100-day mark approaches, Trump has managed to introduce just one bill into Congress. That, of course, the ill-fated measure to scale back President Obama's health care law that culminated in an embarrassing defeat at the hands of Trump's own Republican Party. Trump gave a bizarre and self-pitying interview earlier in the week to the AP that attempted to downplay the significance of the 100-day mark while claiming he had done, quote, more than any other president in history. Trump, in fact, has just one accomplishment to his name, the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch. And Trump proposed sharp reductions in both individual and corporate income tax rates, reducing the number of brackets to 3, 10%, 25%, and 35%. Trump also called for the elimination of most deductions, but would save mortgage interest and charitable giving. The estate tax and the alternative minimum tax, two devices used to ensure the rich pay their fair share, are also on Trump's block. The plan was met with derision, with the New York Times running a headline saying Trump's tax plan is a massive giveaway to the wealthy. Democrats have also vowed not to move forward on any tax plan until Trump releases his own returns. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin told reporters on Wednesday that Trump would not release his returns at all, despite having promised to do so after a routine IRS audit. Many observers think the tax plan cannot pass. And a recent poll finds that 42% of Americans approve of Trump's job performance. That is the lowest recorded at the stage of a presidency dating back to Dwight Eisenhower. The highly respected Marist poll finds that just 39% of people approve of Donald Trump's presidency. These are the Trump Diaries. Matt Machowski of Who Gives a interviewed Joe Tassone about the challenges of unionizing his Starbucks store with the international workers of the world. W Gas airs on the first and third Sunday of the month at 3 p.m. I'm your host, Matt Machowski. We're here with Joe Tassoni, uh, recording in the field at Mystery Street Recording Company. And, and of course, you, you got involved in, in union activism uh, mm-hmm. with the IWW. Yeah. Um, you're organizing at, at your workplace, and, mm-hmm. and you uh, ended up uh, being an elected official in the union. Uh, right. Tell us a little bit about all that. Yeah, you know, I, I started school. I went to Columbia, and while I was there, I and I, when I first moved to the city, I'm like, oh, I got to get a job, got to work. And so I just, you know, first week I moved to the city, I just applying everywhere I could um, or planned to. The first place I walked into was uh, went to Starbucks and put in an application. And right then and there, I think it was the assistant manager's like, hey, uh, do you want an interview? I'm like, okay. I didn't even finish my application yet. He interviewed me right there. And I got the job, so mm-hmm. I didn't even have to, even have to apply anywhere else. Um, so, <laughs> you, that, Joe, you're going to put out an entire industry of people who whose entire jobs is to try to like, you know, <laughs> tell <laughs> businesses how to hire people. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm going there. I had no intention of like or, of organizing or doing, you know, of that. I, I went there because I needed a job. I was a poor college kid, and I'm like, I mm-hmm. got to pay rent, so. I go in there and they, you know, I get hired and I'm like, you know, I had a friend who worked at, at Starbucks in high school and she's like, oh, they've got good benefits. Oh, they, this and that. Yeah. For, you know, for a high school kid. Sure. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I'm living on my own and I've got to make a living. And, um, it, once I, I started there, like really quickly, I realized that a lot of that was just marketing, mm-hmm. a lot of money spent on marketing about how great the job was rather than money being spent on creating a better workplace. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of, it, it irritated me. And, it, you know, I was, you know, I, I, I wanted something better. I, my, all my coworkers were, you know, really smart people and, you know, there's people with families and I felt like, you know, not only myself, but everyone I worked with deserved better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, then I, I actually discovered uh, the industrial workers of the world, and I found out that 
out in New York City, there was uh, a Starbucks store that had organized and uh, joined with the IWW. Mm-hmm. And so I, I reached out and I, I started organizing my workplace too. Um, you know, I was there for about four and a half years and we organized a few stores and the anti-union campaign was strong. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I eventually was fired. You know, what ended up happening was I, I was, um, I was laying in bed one morning and I get a phone call from somebody and she says, Hey, you know, this is someone I had met with through, uh, through the organizing campaign and she says hey howard schultz is at this starbucks at whatever some street downtown and he's the ceo he is, yeah the of ceo starbucks. of starbucks and he goes oh he's, he's at this at this store so i go like it's like i just thought i'd let you know he's in the city right now and we know where he is I'm like all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna go talk to him because i've been trying you know i've been sending demand letters his way for four years now and he, he doesn't respond to anything mm-hmm. so i'm like i'm gonna go talk to him in person so I go down there and he, there he is, he's sitting doing a, a newspaper interview mm-hmm. and, um, and I actually recognized the reporter too, but so that's how I, you know, I knew what was going on. They're sitting there and, uh, I walk up to him and I say, uh, Mr. Schultz, hi, I'm Joe Tassoni with the, uh, IWW Starbucks workers union. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. And he goes, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm doing an interview right now. I, I can talk to you when I'm done. So I'm like, okay. So I, I sit down patiently about two seats away from him and I just uh-huh. sit there, you know, glaring uh-huh. at him <laughs> for, you know, for a good 40 minutes and you know, I can see him sweating. And, uh, as soon as he finishes the interview, he, he gets up and he starts to walk away, just, you know, turns around immediately and starts walking away from me. So I get back up and I say, Oh, oh Mr. Schultz, I just want to ask you a few questions. You know, I want to talk to you about some of the working conditions in my store. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he throws his hands in the air and starts backing up for me and goes, uh, I, I, I don't have time for this. I have a phone conference to be on. And he starts backing away and he, he just books it out the back door of the Starbucks. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I was standing there. I, I like, guess all the money he makes can't buy him courage. <laughs> right. Actually, so the, funny you should say that. The, the, the article I had wrote about it was called Howard the Coward, the, the day my boss ran away. Um, and so, yeah, he, he books it like everyone in the store is looking like, what what just happened? And he, he's gone and I'm standing there. What am I going to do? And so so I leave. Not much else I can do at that point. So, oh, so the next day, um, I get a phone call from my manager mm-hmm. and she says, oh, you know, your availability isn't what it used to be, so we're gonna have to uh, separate you from the company. <laughs> and sure, yeah, it was my availability, right? Um, not the fact that I was, uh, you know, trying to organize my sure my coworkers. Well, one one of the uh, stories from that campaign that I want you to to tell had to do with uh, a ladder. Oh, the letter. Can you tell this story? Yeah, I, I can tell the story. Yeah. So uh, this is like, I think one of the the greatest direct action stories I could ever tell. Mm-hmm. So basically what we did was um, one of our demands in our store was that well, when, when we when we went public with the union was we wanted the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why was that we have light bulbs to change and high ceilings and the only option if you wanted to reach a light bulb was to climb on top of a shaky table. Hope you don't fall and crack your head open. Mm-hmm. Uh, change and, the light and these bulb. are the same tables that people ate at. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, we'd wipe them down. We don't. We don't want to make customers <laughs> sick. We're trying to make the bosses sick, not necessarily the customers. But <laughs> either way, we're putting our dirty feet up on the tables and we're changing light bulbs. Mostly, I'm concerned with uh, you know. People cracking their heads open. Yeah. And so I'm like, what? we want a ladder. But because the union asked for a ladder, no one gets a ladder. The union bought a ladder. <laughs> and we slapped a couple stickers on it that said, brought brought to you by the IWW Starbucks Workers Union for <laughs> a safer and healthier workplace. <laughs> and uh, we, we carried into the store. Our uh, district manager was in a meeting with our store manager at the time. And so we just walked on in and with this ladder and um they're like what, what are you doing I go, oh, i bought got a ladder for the store 
you guys wouldn't buy one for us, so the union got one for us. And <laughs> they were like, they just, they froze. They didn't know what to do. They're like, you know, it's like, obviously, you know, we want a ladder. <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to say? No, you can't have a ladder here now? Um, there's nothing they could say. If they said, no, we can't have the ladder, well, basically saying we have to stand on these tables and and mm. risk I mean, our safety. It's got to be an OSHA violation. Oh, Yeah. Of course. And so it was a win-win. They either let us keep the ladder, which has stickers that say IWW Starbucks Workers Union, Mm -hmm. or they tell us we can't have the ladder and they buy us a new ladder, Mm -hmm. you know, or they'd say we can't have one and, oh, you know, you tell that to the media. Yeah. They're not, you know, it's just, it was a win-win. So um, it it worked. I mean, we, um, well, they didn't let us keep the ladder there. Tell us we had to leave, but. They bought us a ladder. They bought you a and that, ladder. And that's how, you know, that was one of our demands. We got one of our I, demands I, met I, through direct action. I, I love that story because you guys didn't call up some government bureaucrat to come in and scold them and whatever. You didn't beg and plead with them to get a ladder. You just went out, bought a ladder, said, we have a ladder now. Right? There it was. Uh, and, and just kind of like took control of like, you know, that one part of the workplace mm-hmm. um and i just love that story thanks and and of course uh you know you went on to elected office in the union uh tell us a little bit about that yeah so well after i got fired i was a little bit unemployed for a little bit and yeah i was actually running uh, and opened the studio at that point um but you know the studio was in its infancy and you know, we were basically just keep you know we're putting all of our money back into the the company and getting it growing and getting it started. So I was at a uh, IWW convention and somebody nominates me for the general secretary treasury position. Mm-hmm. And it was a great honor to be, to be nominated. And if I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to take that. I'm going to accept that nomination. I didn't really know what it meant at the time. Um, but I knew that it was a, a challenge I was up to and I knew that I could do really good things for the organization. So, uh, so I accepted the nomination. I, you know, I ultimately won the election and, uh, I would say it was a landslide victory. And, uh, we moved the general headquarters to Chicago, which, uh, it's still is here. Home. It's historic home and it's still yeah. back. It's still here. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, a, would be a really good place for it to stay. You know, the, uh, we've had, multiple secretary treasurers now mm-hmm. since I've been in office who have come from out of state to come live in Chicago to mm-hmm. run the office. And that hasn't really happened uh, before that. It was everywhere it, it, else. It it's kept, been. It kept moving, it kept moving. For, for a number of years. Yeah, The so. office kept moving and, and that was a financial disaster for the organization and a, a, you know, an organizational headache moving yeah. an office every couple of years. Yeah. So I felt, you know, one of the things I kind of ran my campaign on was let's keep it in Chicago and mm-hmm. let's, you know, become stable again. Let's have a home again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the organization's done a really good job of that since, um, you know, since I've left. Mario Smith spoke to Carla Stilwell from Impact Theater about race, Trump, and the arts in a time of chaos. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday from 2 to 4 p.m. What's up, everybody? News from the service entrance, the radio show. It's Mario. How you doing? It's a beautiful day if you like dreary and dark and damp. <laughs> In the studio with me now is uh, the artistic director of Impact. They've got all kinds of new stuff happening. This new season is amazing. We're going to get a chance to talk about it with my buddy, the number one Facebook friend of everybody, Carla Stilwell. <laughs> What's up, boss? Hello. <laughs> How you doing? I'm I'm. On my best behavior, I've been threatened <laughs> twice today at two different locations not to be using the profanities. There you go. Make it happen. So I am sitting <laughs> up straight like a lady. Yes, you are. I can vouch for that. Using all of my good Catholic school girl um, training. We're right across the street from a, a Catholic school with a very threatening name that I can't remember at the moment, but it sounds like if you did something, some lightning bolt would find its way oh, back yeah. here to Studio Oh, Canyon. yeah. I have my holy water in my purse. Congratulations. I, 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 I stay prayed. Up. Yep. Yep. Uh, I want to I talk to you about what's going on with Impact. You guys are, are introducing new stuff this season. Um, give everybody, and, and your Jeff recommended for a play too. Let's talk yes. about that. Um, Impact 
Theater here in Chicago. We are the Ma'at Production Association of African Center Theater. We have been doing theater in Chicago for 26 seasons. This is the end of our 26th season. Right now we have a show running called Never the Milk and Honey, written by our um, very first resident playwright, Shepsu Ayaku. Oh, wow. Um, this, this was the founder season. So all of our shows this season have been Shepsu's work, which has been lovely. Mm-hmm. I am actually directing this piece. Uh, we are Jeff recommended right now. We are also, we have wonderful review in the Chicago reader. So, um, lovely show running at the greenhouse theater center, 2257 North Lincoln Avenue. Tell me about the play. What is the 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 play about? And I know some of his work. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, well, tell me about the play first. Um, this piece is about a family who um, their um, patriarch was uh, a doomsday preacher, mm. and it is about their life after um, two twenty k and the world did not end. Mm. So it's it's a very moving, very touching piece. Is it possible to 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 put some correlation with that that feeling? I remember that feeling. Mm. Although I was like, you know, come on, really. But I remember that feeling. But that that impending sense of doom then and now 16, 17 years later, this impending sense of doom <laughs> with Donald J. Did, did, did you see any correlation when you were working out the idea of how you wanted to direct this and what what direction you wanted it to go in? Well, did you I'll lean t- back on that stuff? I'll tell you what about our current events resonates with this play. It's not so much the doomsday part of it. It is these. It is the true believers. Mm-hmm. And um, how the how myopic and um, uh, people that live their lives with blinders on, like a lot of the Trump followers do, mm-hmm. and look at the world through such a, a, a finite, minute like lens, how those people um, experience loss when it when the truth reveals itself and how devastating it is for them. It makes you have a different kind of sympathy for the true believers, you know? Yeah. We're talking about roadside preachers, the tents on the side of the, of the highway, revival lists. Well, well, this is actually based on a true story. Mm. One of Shepsu's family members uh, was he and his wife were, they had a church mm. in the South and... Um, they really were preparing for the end of the world. Hmm. So um, this this was a, a they had created a whole mythology around uh, the way the world would end. They were stockpiling food. Hmm. It happens. Wow. When 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 opportunities like this for you as a director come along, mm-hmm. is it like how many of these things do you go? I don't think we should direct that. Especially in your role as artistic director. How many things do you get where you go, I don't think we should do that, or we've got to find a way to put this into the season somehow? Um, I there are there's a lot of stuff I don't want to do. Um, impact, <laughs> say, impact does, say word, Carla Still. Uh, you know, I gotta be real. <laughs> we do um new work by um playwrights of the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. We only produce um new original work. Um I have to say that Right now, at this with everything that's going on in our country, I am completely, vehemently opposed to doing period pieces about black people mm. uh, because I think it is important for us to live in a contemporary space and for us to see images on stage of black people now mm-hmm. going living through the 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 Cheeto administration. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wonder if. Um as we move on, uh, however long this lasts with with the current administration, as artists, the role of the artist, um, particularly what you just said about what what the the optic is, what people see, the role right. of the artist. How 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 do you feel about that? I think it, we are at a point where we have to be artists as activists. I I think that you know when when you. Uh, Look at history like the um, Black Renaissance and um, the Black Arts Movement and um, 
other times that were extremely um, turbulent Mm -hmm. in American history, in world history. The artist had to step up and be a reflection Mm -hmm. of the foolery. You know, like it it is our job as artists to um, tell the contemporary story and put a a, a magnifying glass and a a spotlight and a and a searchlight Mm -hmm. (laughs) on our world and examine how we can be better. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.